John chapter 16, I'll begin reading at verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman has given birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Dear Lord and our God, how we love you, how we praise you, how we worship your holy name. Come, Lord, now and help us to make room for you this hour. Help us to remove all distractions, anything that stands in our way from learning more about you and hearing your word preached. Be with our pastor, Lord. Help him to have strength and joy and energy to deliver your holy word. And may every breath, every syllable that comes, may be anointed by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been talking about happiness, Jesus and his insight into happiness. But life is not all happy, we would say. It has ups and downs, there's weddings, and there's also funerals. Can we be really happy in life? One thing we know is that through all the ups and downs, through all the harsh and wonderful times of life, it's Wonderful to have a companion, the comfort of a friend who is with us and walks with us through all that, and how difficult it is to be happy without that companionship. So keep that in mind as we now turn to John chapter 16 and listen to Jesus as he counsels his closest friends about joy or happiness or delight at the darkest moment of their life. So I'm going to just look at uh, these things. First of all, that sorrow and joy or sorrow and happiness can coexist. And secondly, I'm going to uh, look at this fact that there is a healthy, uh, there is a healthy sorrow. And lastly, there is a friend who abides, a friend who will never leave us. Life will have heartbreaking losses but sorrow and happiness can coexist. So here in this text, we know as we've been, uh, as perhaps you've been reading the previous chapters as at other times, this upper room discourse, the last hours of Jesus' life, we know that Jesus has been telling them that he is leaving. And their hearts are sorrowful. 
Why? Why does there have to be such endings in life? I know this is a reality, but we wonder why this has to be in life. Uh, some of you have seen that very old movie, Fiddler on the Roof. You know, it's been on Broadway and it's on every high school theater at some point, you know. And there's this scene where one of the daughters is going to Siberia to marry the man she loves. And they're standing in this train station, the father and the daughter, and the, waiting for the train to come. And you can see the father's face is full of anguish because he knows he'll never see his daughter again. Siberia. Why do such things have to happen? So life has such sorrowful turns. So you have to imagine, as we look at our text in John 16, the emotional intensity in the room. You have to imagine someone you love has just come back from the hospital or a doctor and tells you that they're going to die. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. We have to imagine that because Jesus has been informing his disciples that he's leaving, and not just leaving, but that he's going to be killed. That's the backdrop to the kind of sorrow that the disciples are feeling at this moment. So, sorrow is a word that I'm going to try to follow through this text and then in a few other texts, but sorrow fills the hearts of the disciples, and in fact, Jesus notices it. If you go back to chapter 16, verse 6 in John, Jesus says, Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. He sees it in their faces. He knows it. And then in our text, he says what is going to happen. He knows that sorrow has filled it. In verse 20, he says, You will weep and lament, and the world will rejoice. You will sorrow but your sorrow will turn to joy. I know those, those last two words, sorrow, sometimes is translated grief. I'm going to uh, today just uh, use the word sorrow wherever the, wherever the root word in the original is also the same word, sorrow. You will lament, you will sorrow, but your sorrow will turn to joy. How? How can sorrow turn to joy? So Jesus explains how Happiness and sorrow can coexist with this very dramatic parable, uh, this very dramatic story. It's in verse 21 of our text. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain or sorrow, same word. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. A woman has sorrow, but then she no longer remembers her anguish. When a woman uh, is pregnant and her time is near, she has sorrow. Why? Well, I mean, sleep is getting more and more uncomfortable every day. She's worried. There's anxiety for the pain that lies ahead. There's worry about just the details. You know, do I call the doctor? Do I call the midwife? Ah, they're probably thinking I'm a pest. But on the other hand, if I don't call them in time, there's worry about the car ride to the hospital. There's anxiety about everything that's going to happen, and there's a lot of unknowns, maybe amplified if this is the first child. There's all these unknowns and even questions about, well, the health of the child. There's these prayers being muttered, oh, Lord, please make this baby be healthy. Sorrow. It's a picture of life that we have to keep in mind. 
I think this little verse here, this little parable, is something that helps us to understand our lives. He's saying, this is what this sorrow you're experiencing, my disciples, is like. But in a way, this is a picture of the life that we all experience all the time. There's always this kind of sorrow in our hearts. But, but notice that at the very same time, this woman is experiencing a great happiness. The time is here. She's happy. Her husband's happy. The whole family's happy because the baby is coming. Soon she'll be able to cradle this little one in her arms. Sorrow and joy coexist. Sorrow is real, but buried under all that anxiety, the sleepless nights, the worry, the prayer, the worry about labor is this grand happiness that soon she's going to have the reward. Sorrow and gladness and happiness and joy all coexist. So that's the first thing we have to know about real life, that in real life, it's not we are happy or we're sorrowful. They can coexist. The second thing then is that there is a healthy sorrow. Not all sorrow is good, but there is a healthy sorrow. I mean, we sometimes forget this. It's, it's the most obvious thing. If you lose someone you love, the way that the disciples are thinking they're losing their dearest friend and their leader, if you lose someone you love, of course you're going to feel grief. There's something wrong with you if you don't feel grief. But there are people, and I have met many of them, who think there's something wrong. Oh, I need help because I'm overwhelmed here. My heart is breaking. Of course it's breaking. You've experienced a tremendous sorrow. But there is sorrow that's healthy and sorrow that's unhealthy. So I'd like to follow that word sorrow through a couple other texts of Scripture. Uh, first of all, there's an unhealthy sorrow. Because it's a road that leads nowhere. Here's two illustrations from the Bible. One is from the Corinthian church, and the other is from an encounter Jesus had with a rich young man. First, the Corinthian church. Uh, you may remember that in the Corinthian church, there was a man who behaved, well, outrageously. He slept with his stepmother. Something that was not allowed, of course, in the church, but Paul says it wasn't even allowed among the pagans. But he refused to change, even when he was confronted. And so there was this break in the sweet friendship and fellowship he had with all the brothers and sisters in the church. He was stubbornly all by himself. But something wonderful happened. That incident is, re is recorded in the first letter of Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But then something wonderful happened, and it's recorded in the second uh, letter of Paul to the Corinthians. And that is that he repented. He changed his mind. And now Paul warns of an unhealthy sorrow. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, he tells the church, Be careful, lest this man be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And so he says, Be careful by welcoming him back quickly, offering your friendship and your love to him, or else this sorrow can overtake him. And he goes on to say in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, that Satan waits to take advantage of that kind of unhealthy sorrow. Someone who's filled with guilt and sorrow, but too proud to repent. Pride is one of the tools of the devil. Someone who feels condemned and isolated. Oh, nobody could love me. Nobody could ever welcome me back. 
but not seeking God's forgiveness and new life and a church maybe that's too hard, too harsh to welcome back someone who's wandered away. Satan takes advantage of these things. So, so there is an unhealthy, you might say a dangerous sorrow also in the scriptures. It's illustrated in one other place. Uh, Matthew chapter 19 records this incident of a wealthy young man who came to Jesus, declared that he kept all the Ten Commandments and said, what else do I lack? There's something still missing in my life. What must I do to inherit life? And so Jesus told him, well, there's actually two things you have to do. He says, you have to give away all that you have to the poor and come and follow me. It's not as though the act of generosity will save him, but the act of generosity will open the door for him to do what will save him, which is to follow Jesus. So remove this chain that's binding you and follow me, and you'll have life eternal. But he can't do it. He has this love affair with money, and he just can't do it. Some of you have heard about John D. Rockefeller, sort of at the turn of the last century, one of the wealthiest men that maybe ever was in this country. He had, this is hard to imagine, he had 1% of all the wealth of the entire U.S. One man, 1% of all the wealth of the entire nation. And somebody once asked him, so, so how much money will it take to satisfy you, Mr. Rockefeller? And he said, just a little bit more. This young man had a love affair with money, and he couldn't give up his money even if it kept him from eternal life. And then here's that word. Chapter 19, verse 22 of Matthew, it says, He went away sorrowful. He went away sorrowful forever. Sorrowful forever. So here's a sorrow that's deadly. He would be trapped in this sorrow all the days of his life, making maybe more and more and more money, but always this question would be in the back of his heart, what still do I lack? There's something missing in my life. What is it? Always unsatisfied, but never able to break free of what binds him, namely his money. So there's an unhealthy sorrow that can grip us. And the scriptures warn us about that. I should say, by the way, I'm not talking here about medical issues so much. There are things physiologically and biologically that, that happen to us that are complicated. I'm speaking about things that are deep in our souls and our spirit, but let's not think that that has nothing to do with our mind and our emotions and our bodies. What happens in our spirit affects all that we are, and we see it all the time. I know that those boundaries are hard to draw between what's spiritual and what's physical. And I, I'm certainly not qualified to draw those boundaries, but those boundaries are a lot blurrier also than we think. But I, and I'm here speaking from experience, having spent more days than I want in that, on those very dark paths of depression and sadness. But I wonder what we could experience of relief from that kind of sorrow if we just did what Christ has prescribed for happiness. If we just did what Jesus said, I wonder how much of that darkness might lift. For example, the last two weeks, we've looked at two prescriptions. Set 
I wonder what happened if I set my mind and my heart on the eternal promises of Christ. Here in our text, Jesus says your sorrow will turn to joy. It's a promise. He's making your sorrow will turn to joy. In Matthew chapter 5, we saw in the Beatitudes, Jesus talked about people who were in difficult, difficult circumstances. But Jesus says, happy are you. Why? Because my eternal promises are true. The promise of a future reward should give you happiness in the present. I wonder what would happen. How much of our darkness would lift if we set our minds and our hearts on just the promises of Christ. I wonder, remember the second prescription we saw in Luke chapter 11. I wonder how much of our darkness would lift if we started just walking according to the word of God. I'm just going to do what it says. It's nice to have everything work out. That's what Luke 11 was pointing to. Children who make us proud, a job that's easy, health that's robust. It's great when that happens. But Jesus pointed to a greater happiness than that, a greater happiness when the path is smooth. It's, it's, it's to have the happiness of a light on the path all the time. And it's the light of God's Word, hearing and doing the Word of God. And it's illustrated here, isn't it? In chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, I, I won't read it right now, but Jesus says, I'm telling you ahead of time what's going to happen so that when it happens, it won't catch you by surprise. You'll be prepared. You'll know what to do. There's a light from Jesus' word on the path that lies ahead. Just put one foot in front of the other in obedience to the word. It has a wonderful, happy effect on sorrowful hearts. One psychologist said this, you more likely act yourself into feeling than feel yourself into action. You more likely act yourself into feeling than feel yourself into action. You see what he's saying in that little pithy phrase is that we think that if I, and when I feel right, then I'll do what's right. I'll act because I feel like I want to act. He's saying, no, you know, it really works the other way around. When you start to do what's right, when you act the way you're supposed to, somehow the feelings follow. Your emotions rise when you say, I'm going to follow the path that Christ has set before me. But if we wait for our emotions, we'll never step forward. You more likely act yourself into feeling than feel yourself into action. There is an unhealthy sorrow. Sorrow is a part of life, but there's also a healthy sorrow, a sorrow that leads to happiness. It's in the parable of this pregnant woman, isn't it? That's what Jesus is talking about. It's a sorrow that blossoms into pure happiness, as complete a joy as you can imagine on earth because she's going to be cradling this little baby in her arms very soon. Sorrow turns to joy, Jesus says. That's the healthy sorrow. Paul wrote about it. He wrote about it with regard to that same man and the response of the church at Corinth. And he wrote about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So Paul says, in fact, if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there. I'll just read a couple verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul writes in verse 8, says, For though I caused you sorrow with my letter, Namely, telling them, you've got to deal with this issue. You can't just ignore it. 
and they were sorrowful when they got that letter from Paul, but nevertheless, it bore fruit. Here's what he continues to say. But though I caused you sorrow, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. You see how in that last verse there's that contrast between a healthy, life-giving sorrow and an unhealthy, deathly sorrow. But you see, one other thing here in verse 10, there is a sorrow that God brings into our lives. The sorrow according to the will of God. It's a sorrow that family and friends rush to heal quickly. Oh, no, 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 don't feel bad. But it's a sorrow that's from God. And sometimes if we heal it too quickly, we don't allow sorrow to do its work. It's seeds of sorrow that God has planted in the heart which bring a person back to him. They, they produce the fruit of eternal happiness and joy in that person's life. We have to allow them to germinate. So here's happiness and sorrow together. It happens. Happiness and sorrow coexist if the sorrow is healthy. Paul, Paul experienced this in his own life in chapter 6 verse 10 of 2 Corinthians, he says, I'm sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Isn't that something? Because it's a, that healthy sorrow. In chapter 7 verse 5, he says, I have conflicts without and fears within. Isn't that a great description of real life? Do you ever feel that way? Conflicts without and fears within. And yet, he says, God comforted me with some good news. God was there. Happiness coexists with sorrow when it's a healthy sorrow. So in life, sorrow and happiness mix. They coexist. There is a healthy sorrow, which is full of hope. And then lastly, there is a friend who never leaves. There's no parting sorrow. Chapter 16, verse 20 of uh, our text. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. What's he talking about? Yes, he's talking about the resurrection, but there's even more than that. At the end of 22, he says, Therefore you too have grief now, but I will see you again. That could be the resurrection. And your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. There's something that stretches beyond the resurrection, beyond the ascension. And that's the last point. There is a friend who will never leave. And the question is, who is that? Life is full of ups and downs. We've looked into three insights from Jesus into the happiness of real life. And all three of them point to this real friend. Uh, happiness comes from focusing our minds and our hearts on the promises of the Lord Jesus Christ because life has ups and downs. You know, life is like a roller coaster. You, you pay big bucks and you get on this ride, which is hundred, maybe 400 feet up in the air. And then you 
go down this steep incline at breakneck speeds. There's a look of terror on your face. You pay someone to take a picture of your terrified face. Finally make it to the end. And what do you do? You turn around and get back on again. Why is that? Because there's a promise. The promise is you'll be safe. Everything's going to work out. And so Jesus said, that's what is, produces happiness even in those terrifying moments in life. It's his promises. And what guarantees that promise to us? We saw last time in texts like Ephesians 1, verse 13, that the guarantee of those promises in our hearts is the Holy Spirit of God. Remember, we talked about how in many ways he's like an engagement ring that a woman may wear on her, on her finger, even before she's married. She may be having a hard time at work. She may not be able to, to deal with financial distresses she has, but every time she looks at the ring, it reminds her that there's a love waiting. There's a different life that awaits her. It's a promise. And the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of the promises of Christ. That's the first thing Jesus said that we, anyway, looked at about his insights into happiness. The second thing we looked at was that happiness comes from light on the path from the Word of God. And friends, it's the Spirit of God who is the author of the Word of God. In fact, the Spirit of God was the one who caused the apostles to remember everything that Jesus had said, to record it and apply it to the life of the church. Here's how Jesus put it. Uh, If you turn back a couple chapters in John to chapter 14, verse 25 and 26, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. You see, that's why there's there's content when he commissioned them in Matthew's uh, Gospel chapter 28, and he said, go into all the world and teach them to observe all that I have commanded. They could do it because the Holy Spirit was with them, inspiring them to write what Jesus had taught and apply it to the life of the church. And so that we come now to the third insight. The promise, the word, and the friend. In chapter 16, verse 22, it says, no one will ever take that joy away. How? Through the ups and downs of life, it's wonderful to have a companion who loves you, who is going to be with you through all those ups and downs who will never leave you. Proverbs 17, verse 17, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. Who is that? It's the Holy Spirit of God. Again, if you look at chapter 16, Uh, At the beginning, verses 6 and 7, Jesus says, Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. That is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And he will be with you all the days of our lives. There is a friend who will never leave us. So here were the disciples, grieving, sorrowful. It's got to be the hardest day in their lives. I mean the hardest, maybe I should say, season of their life. Because they're going to see some terrible things as they see Jesus crucified. 
They were with Jesus pretty much day and night for three years, if you can imagine. They'd grown very close as friends. They loved to hear him teach. He had such an enormous insight into human nature and, of course, insight into who God is. His, his stories and his teachings were peppered with humor. Sometimes we think Jesus didn't laugh. I think he laughed out loud sometimes as he was teaching. I mean, imagine using the, the, the figure of a guy with a log in his eye to depict someone who refuses to forgive. Of course he was smiling when he said that, and, and the disciples chuckled. Imagine talking about someone who is so rich that he can't let go of his money and saying that it's like, boy, getting him into heaven is like getting a camel through the eye of a needle. Of course he laughed. And so did the disciples. He was a man who had power and wisdom and love, a gentle charm which made children run to him and sit in his lap. He was their friend. They, they loved listening to him. They loved following him. They loved everything about him. And now he said he was going to leave them. This was a friend who said he would do anything in the world for them. In chapter 15, verse 13, it says, No greater love has a man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And he says, that's what he came to do. I came to give my life as a ransom for sinners. I mean, how many friends do you have who you can even call at three in the morning if you need help? Really? And how many of them would ever even think of dying for you? But that's what Christ Jesus came to do. A dear friend, and now he's leaving. So what possible happiness can there be now? He says he will abide with us forever. How? Through the Holy Spirit. If you go back, let me just read again chapter 14. Again, verses 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you will be in you forever. There's no parting sorrow from the Holy Spirit. I think when the subject of the Holy Spirit comes up, some of us are on guard. I think we've gotten scared of the Holy Spirit. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the excesses that we've seen. Sometimes excesses we've seen from authors or people that we've uh, seen on TV or the radio. Sometimes I think it's because of the unbiblical claims which have been made about the Holy Spirit. But you have to notice that the comfort of Jesus here, the, the promise of happiness to his own people, rests on the Holy Spirit. All through these closing chapters of Jesus' ministry in John's Gospel, the Holy Spirit is present. For example, being loved brings happiness. Not being loved brings unhappiness. And there's many people who are unhappy because they're not loved. Not just knowing that they're loved, but experiencing an intimate love. And in Romans 5, verse 5, it says that that love is experienced by us, how? Through the Holy Spirit of God. That's how God ministers that love to us. Unhappiness is being lost and confused, not knowing what the purpose of our life is. But you know what the scripture says? For example, in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, it says that 
all the children of God are led by the Holy Spirit. He shows them the future. He shows them the path. Unhappiness is not knowing what meaning there is to your life. Not having any sense of significance. Does my life matter? Does anybody care what I do or what I say? And in Romans 8, chapter 15, it's through the Holy Spirit, Scripture says, through the Holy Spirit that we are absolutely convinced inwardly that we are children of the Creator of heaven and earth. And that He loves us intimately, so intimately, the Holy Spirit tells us that we can turn our attention to Him and call Him by those intimate names, Daddy, Abba, Father. And in the same verse it says that when we do that, he, His ear is tuned to our prayers the way a father's ear is tuned to his child's requests. It's the Holy Spirit of God that brings us happiness. So the promises of Christ give us happiness no matter what the circumstances. We've seen that promises guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. The Word of God gives us light on the path, whether the path is easy or whether it's dark and full of obstacles. And it's the Holy Spirit who authored that word. And it's the Holy Spirit who is our friend and our companion all the sweet and sour days of our life. That's the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the key. That's the insight into happiness in life. So we've been looking at Jesus as he speaks to us about all these words which are synonyms. Joy, happiness, delight, gladness. When we feel, as Paul felt, conflicts without and fears within, our prayer should be, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. Because why? Because the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy, delight, happiness in the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh, Lord God, we thank you for your gift of yourself to us, that you've promised to indwell us through your Holy Spirit, that you have promised never to leave us or forsake us when times are hard, when sorrow seems to be at the door. Thank you, Lord, that you're with us with these robust promises, that you're with us with the truth of your word to guide us, and, oh, Lord, with your, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, keeping us strong, lifting up our spirits shedding abroad your love into our hearts. We commit ourselves into your joyful hands, Lord. In your holy name we pray. Amen. As you leave, I want you to imagine God's happiness. Imagine, perfectly wise, all knowledge is his, righteous, holy, full of compassion, love, and tenderness, and, as Scripture says, he can do whatever he pleases, in heaven on on earth. What happiness. You know what scripture says? It pleases him to fill you with his happiness and joy. That's John chapter 15, verse 11. God incarnate said that he's come that his joy may be in us and our joy may be full. No wonder Psalm 144, verse 15 says, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. So that's my blessing. May God anoint you with his Holy Spirit and fill you with his comfort and his love and fill your life with happiness with the fellowship of this divine friend. Amen.